Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Little Patients Big Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. This is part two of the set of episodes that I put out with Dr. Halden Scott on lactate and pediatric sepsis. So if you haven't listened to part one, go ahead and go back in the feed. This episode will make a lot more sense. After we recorded that first episode, the Society of Critical Care Medicine guidelines for pediatric sepsis were updated. They had some things to say about lactate as well as some additions to the guidelines. So I got Dr. Scott back in the studio to talk about the changes. As a reminder, she sat on the writing panel for these guidelines. Great. Thanks. I welcome the opportunity to join the sepsis podcast yet again. <laughs> I promise that there is going to be some other topic that we uh, we talk about on this podcast. It's just going to, going to take a little bit. Um, so this is, uh, I have to begin by saying I do not represent the American College of Critical Care Medicine or Society of Critical Care Medicine or the entire author group. These are my own opinions. But I was really excited to be part of these guidelines. This is the third version of them. They initially were in 2002 and 2007 and really began aggressive early care of pediatric sepsis and codified it in an important way. In the title of the guidelines is the question of hemodynamic support, and they came from critical care medicine. So the questions asked for literature review were critical care questions, and the authors were intensivists. And in this guideline, as you can see, we got more into some of the aspects of care that affect the emergency department and are derived from some of the advances that have come out of emergency medicine. And so now among the 56 authors, three of us are pediatric emergency medicine trained. So what do the guidelines have to say about lactate? Is is it different at all from what we discussed uh, last week? Right. The elephant in the room. Um So these guidelines are technically the 2014 guidelines for the care of pediatric septic shock. Although published in 2017, the literature review ended in 2014, and a lot of the exciting studies in ped sepsis that used lactate happened after that lit review was closed. So it makes sense that perhaps I'm a little bit more enthusiastic about the use of lactate than the overall guidelines end up being. And I think you can hear strains. The guidelines are still more enthusiastic about lactate than they were in the first and second editions of it. But I think uh, we can demonstrate kind of two voices coming through about lactate in the guidelines. All right, hang on. Let me put on my committee voice. For now, the committee recommends early recognition of pediatric septic shock using clinical examination, not biochemical tests. Nevertheless, given the broad adoption of lactate in adult guidelines and the suggestive data in small pediatric studies, lactate measurement, if high on initial measurement, may be useful to judge resolution of shock. Early elevated lactate from a free-flowing sample may grab a clinician's attention when clinical signs are difficult to decipher. It is inexpensive, readily available, and over time perform well as an indicator of shock and its resolution. However, because clinical signs of compensated and decompensated shock are always present in children, whereas high lactate is commonly not, we stress early recognition with clinical signs, not lactate. Now, hold on. I take a little bit of issue with just two of those things, and I was wondering if you could talk about. One is the the specification of a free-flowing sample, which I know we talked about the last time. Right. You know how I feel about that. <laughs> it <laughs> is what we've traditionally been taught, but the evidence bears out that a tourniqueted venous sample works just fine. And, and two is, is this assertion that these signs of compensated or uncompensated shock are always present. And, and while that may be true, I just I wonder how often they are always recognizable. 
Right, exactly. I think we're working in a chaotic system, and it is great to recognize shock before hypotension and before high lactate is present or measured. But that doesn't always happen, and these extra indicators, especially indicators that are so strongly associated with the most severe outcomes, are helpful. So while we want to be well-educated, highly skilled clinicians and detect shock from the look and touch of a patient, it is great for me to know that in our emergency department, if a patient becomes hypotensive or has a high lactate, that there are automated systems in place to tell me about that patient immediately if somehow it misses the detection of the astute clinician. I additionally think it may be more helpful to those of us in emergency medicine than in the ICU because hopefully we're doing some good early resuscitation and lactate may not be so much of a differentiator by the time a patient reaches the ICU. So they may not see the same spectrum of different early lactate levels that we do. And we have a different denominator problem and we're addressing the question of are they critically ill, which has usually been addressed by the time someone is admitted to the ICU. All right. So now that we've addressed the the gigantic lactatemic elephant in the room, what else was in these guidelines that were different from the previous set? If you look at this guideline, it's really long. And so I want to give some strategies for tackling it. In that first part, when they talk about what is the history of the guidelines, this is where they get into the reason for the biggest new change, which is the addition of bundles to the guidelines. Those bundles are a recognition bundle, a resuscitation bundle, stabilization bundle, and performance bundle. And some of the most exciting research that has happened in the last five years, and I say this with a biased perspective, has been in the emergency department, where researchers from Texas and Salt Lake City and Boston have shown adherence to the entire package of guidelines resulted in better patient outcomes. And this performance bundle is Maybe obvious addition, but it's really codifying that the measurement of what you're doing is, in fact, almost a treatment and improves outcome. So once we've recognized sepsis, let's chat a little bit about any specifics in the resuscitation bundle. One thing I'd really like to hear about is just knowing that there have been a handful of trials within pediatrics that have suggested some potential harm from fluids. And then the adults had the process arise and promise trials that questioned goal-directed therapy and, and how much was needed and how frequently. What is our paradigm for thinking about initial fluid resuscitation in pediatric sepsis? So it's interesting. So what is included in the resuscitation bundle is the goal of initiating fluid resuscitation within 30 minutes. Nowhere in this guideline will you see that there is a specific volume of fluid that is indicated for all patients. It actually says there are some patients who need fluid and some who don't, and you should resuscitate to normal volemia. Wait, wait, wait. You're telling me that even in a protocolized care guideline, they're recommending that you individualize your care for patients? Exactly. Yeah, so the idea that everyone who needs fluid should have it started right away, but that the amount of fluid everyone needs might be different is a finessing or shift from where we have been in pediatric sepsis and does reflect some of the evidence suggesting we need to pay more attention to patient vulnerabilities to fluid. One element that I really like is beginning an inotrope uh, within 60 minutes of fluid refractory shock. So the exact inotrope may not be specified, But the idea that um, I think in the past these guidelines have been interpreted as 
everyone gets 60 per kilo of fluid and only then can they receive inotropes. And this really is suggesting that letting a patient sit hypotensive is probably the worst thing we can do. And that within 60 minutes, if our fluid isn't doing the trick, um, some kind of vasoactive or inotrope should be on board. Something actually that I remember you teaching me as a resident that I've really held with me is that that there's no level of fluid above which you just you're absolutely not allowed to give it. You know, if you start doing inotropes, it doesn't mean you have to stop the fluids. It's it's just that you need to come up with something else that that you're doing. You can shrink the tank and fill it at the same time. Uh, there's a lot of reminder and discussion about the fact that children tend to have a pretty uh, a pretty significant proportion of children have a cardiogenic component of their shock in sepsis. And so inotropes are uh, a favored resuscitation strategy, whether it is dopamine or epinephrine, and there's some discussion about the pros and cons of each of those, um, that a first-line vasoactive agent for a child in shock, unless there is a, another assessment to drive you one way or the other, should include an inotrope. So should be epinephrine or dopamine. Which stands a little bit in contrast to some of the the ways that we think about shock in, in adults. Uh, and in the and you know the the next step is actually that this guideline group and its home within ACCM and SCCM is actually uh, sort of being retired and shifted over to the surviving sepsis campaign, which will have its first ever pediatric septic shock guidelines uh, formatted along the way of the surviving sepsis guidelines. Uh, coming out hopefully in 2018. So stay tuned. Thanks for coming back and chatting with us, Halden. I'm going to have to start thinking about something to talk about other than lactate and sepsis. So I appreciate you helping me fill in. What else is there? (laughs) And thank you everybody else for listening. This has been another episode of the Little Patients Big Medicine podcast. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. You can email me at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. I'm also a semi-regular contributor to the Alium website, www.aliem.com in the PEM Pearls section. Again, this has been Jason Woods. Thank you so much for listening.